Well, welcome. Welcome to our Saturday Dhamma Q&A meditation session. Today I'm joined by Chris, a volunteer in our online meditation community and a director on our organization's board. He's here filling in for Shraddha, who had to hand over the, the duty to, to Chris. So we're here to ask and answer questions. We're also here to meditate, to practice mindfulness. So the way this works, if you're new here, is we're going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning saying hello, expressing our appreciation for this opportunity to come together and practice the Dhamma. And then at some point we'll settle down into our meditation practice, try and be as mindful and as present as we can, close our eyes, And we're going to close the chat. So once we enter that portion, which will be soon, then the only thing we will allow in chat are questions from that point on. Anything that's not a question, we'll just remove it. And I'll try and remind people that we're removing posts that aren't questions. So at that point, if you have any questions, post them. If you don't have any questions, don't sit there reading the chat. Close your eyes. And join us in the practice of mindfulness. Chris is here to copy your questions to our... Uh, presentation and this is his first time so if he gets it wrong we'll just fire him and find someone else no if he gets it if it's a little bit imperfect that's understandable Appreciate that he's here to help. So I think we'll just get right into it. I'm not going to spend any time talking. If there are questions, Chris is, I think, already ready to post them. So if you have questions, please post them in the chat. Again, the questions should be... Should be... In a best-case scenario, they should be questions that relate directly to your own practice. Questions for which getting an answer is very important. 
is is important for your continued progress in the meditation practice. So we're not looking for theoretical questions, speculative questions, curiosity questions. If your question starts with, I'm curious, we probably won't answer it. I'm directing Chris to answer most uh, urgently or to focus on answering questions that are based on meditation practice. That answer yes to the question Does an is an answer to this question necessary to support this person's meditation practice? And then if we don't have any of those questions, we'll start to entertain questions that are worldly, perhaps. Questions that are helpful for the individual, but may not be directly related to meditation. And then if there really aren't any practical, practical questions, we might consider answering theoretical questions. But we want this to be a, a session that is a benefit to, to, the, to the audience, not one that just entertains or provides intellectual stimulation or satisfies curiosity or that sort of thing. All right, so I think we're ready to begin from now on. The only posts that will be accepted in chat are questions. If they aren't, I'm asking Chris to just delete them. No no offense or no insult intended. Just in order to keep us focused, to remind everyone that we're not here to chat. We're here to practice. And Chris, if you're ready, you can start with the first question. First question is, I can get to the point of meditation of no thoughts, but I cannot get deep into it. How can I make my meditation deeper? So getting to the med point of meditation of no thoughts is not the goal which might surprise some people, but our goal is not to stop thinking. It's to be aware when we are thinking, to be mindful when we are, to know when we're thinking, and to see thinking as thinking. You getting to a point of meditation of no thoughts is a temporary state. It's not the goal. It's not an eternal, lasting state. I mean, there are, of course such um, states as have no thoughts, but that's not the practice. The practice is to see clearly when you are thinking, to see clearly when you're not thinking, and to not discriminate between the two, to understand when your mind is in a shallow state, to understand when it's in a deeper state, not to make your meditation deeper. Deeper is not a, an adjective that we use to describe quality meditation practice. 
clarity, clearer would be the adjective. Superlative. Make your meditation more clear, more present, more mindful, more aware. So when you're not thinking, you could say something like quiet, quiet. When you want to not think, when you want a state of calm, a state of peace, a state of depth, you should note wanting, wanting. What you're experiencing when you say you can't get deeper is you're experiencing non-self. You're seeing that that state is not only unpredictable, but it's also not under your control. It's not actually you or yours. And the state of things is not you or yours. You can't make it be a certain way. And because it's unpredictable and not under your control, it's therefore dukkha. It's a state that isn't going to satisfy you. It's what we call suffering, but it just suffering just means can't satisfy you. Why? Because it's unpredictable and because you can't control it. I'd recommend that you read the booklet on how to meditate. That might help you understand where I'm coming from when I give this answer and the sort of meditation that I would encourage you to practice. There's a link to our booklet in the description. Sometime I fall to sleep during meditation. How do I overcome it? To some extent, that's something that you're going to overcome as you, sorry, that's something you're going to overcome naturally as you progress in the practice. It's a beginner problem some to some extent. Um, and that's because a, a mind that is not inclined to meditate or not accustomed to meditation, not equipped with the qualities of mind related to meditation is... It's often quite out of balance, and meditation helps to balance the mind. So as you continue to practice and it becomes a part of your psyche and your mind becomes skilled in meditation, you'll find you're less imbalanced in terms of having excessive concentration and uh, a lack of, of effort, a lack of energy. Once you balance, then you'll find there's a greater energy and you're more able to stay awake. But that being said, it still is, of course, possible, and especially when you have physical work that you have to perform, perhaps mental work that you have to perform, that your body and your mind are going to become unwieldy and out of balance. So there are going to be times, of course, where you still feel tired and still fall asleep. It's not really something you have to overcome in that sense. Any overcoming would, as I said, just come from cultivating the meditation practice, getting more skilled and, and cultivating the qualities that balance the mind. But when and if it still does happen, as it most likely will, it's not about overcoming it. It's just about being mindful of it. If you feel sleepy, that's a different thing. If you feel drowsy or tired or, or lethargic, 
then there are ways to deal with that. You can get up and do walking meditation, for example. You can splash some cold water on your face. You can turn on the light. There are practical sort of uh, mundane ways of dealing with that. Ultimately, if you just feel really tired and can't overcome it, you can just lie down and mindfully let yourself go to sleep. Try and be mindful until the mind falls asleep. I am interested in doing an all-night meditation session for the first time. Do you recommend taking a light amount of caffeine for energy? No, I don't. If you need if you need caffeine to stay awake, you're not really going to benefit much from staying awake. It's not. It's an artificial energy source. How does one remain mindful while dreaming? Thank you. It can happen that you are lucid dreaming and you can be mindful while dreaming. That can happen. It's not really the goal because ultimately you're going to dream less if you're more awake, more alert, right? When you do sleep, you'll find yourself dreaming less. You'll, you, your sleep will be used for utmost benefit to refresh and recharge you'll only find you'll find yourself only sleeping when you're really in need of a refreshment you'll find your mind is more sorted out more organized more efficient and so there's less of a need to sort things out there's less of the the restlessness and the chaotic state of mind that results in dreaming in the beginning it can be quite the opposite a new meditator often finds that it stirs up a lot of things and so you might find yourself dreaming more but that's a temporary thing if you continue to practice meditation you'll find your dreams are not that uh, not that powerful not that prominent you find sleep is just sleep When I don't have much clarity, I would tend to use notings like useless, unable, hopeless, because they describe how I feel, even if it is very humiliating. Any comment or tip? So those aren't really notings. They're judgments. They are value um, labels that you put on things. They're evaluations of things. Something is not useless. Useless is not an experience. Useless is your perception of it, and that's not an experience. They don't describe how you feel. They describe um, your perception of the thing. So, for example, if you perceive something as useless, like let's say yourself, if you perceive yourself as useless, then how that makes you feel is unpleasant, sad perhaps, depressed perhaps, and those are real. But your thought that you're useless is just a thought, it's a judgment, so you can say judging or thinking. Unable is also just a belief, it's a view. 
It might be true, it might be false, but it's not an experience. You can't experience being unable. You can experience the feeling of frustration, a feeling of depression, even a feeling of letting go. Sometimes when you feel like you can't accomplish something, it's helpful because it helps you to let go. They don't describe how you feel. You don't feel hopeless. You think that you're hopeless and it makes you feel bad or good. Not likely though. Likely it makes you feel bad. So you feel unhappy and that's real. So then you would say unhappy, sad, angry, frustrated, disliking, worried. Maybe it makes you worried or afraid or who knows. But those are just thoughts. Those aren't what you feel. That's an important point. It's a good question because it's important to make this distinction that that's not actually what you're feeling. That's your perception of of the situation, of something that is actually not real. It's just a perception of the truth of your of the experience. But it's not it's not the truth of it. It's a conventional truth. It's what you believe based on your perception of your experiences. I'm staying for two weeks in a monastery for the first time starting next week. How do I get most benefits from this time without getting lazy and sidetracked? Any advice, eight precepts, sleep quota? If you're ever going to stay in a monastery, you should keep eight precepts. There are exceptions, I think, but I would recommend that if you're a visitor at a monastery, absolutely, you should be keeping eight precepts. Sleep quota is sort of part of the eight precepts. The eight precepts implies that you should not engage in excessive sleeping. So at our monastery, the requirement is not more than six hours a night. You shouldn't need more than six hours. It's actually excessive, but it's excessive for someone who's deep in the meditation practice. So for a beginner, well, six hours should be sufficient. Apart from that, practice uh, meditation according to our tradition. That's what I would recommend. Staying for two weeks. Have a teacher. Uh, hopefully that monastery has someone who can teach you, can guide you. If not, well, maybe we could make an arrangement if you want to talk. It could help you for those two weeks. Potentially, but don't just do two weeks on your own, not unless you're an experienced meditator. I would say you, you'd benefit greatly from having contact with a teacher. It's not so much someone who is better than you or more wise or more enlightened than you. It's about having someone who's not you, someone who can see from the outside. It's much easier to see someone else's problems than to see your own. We're very, very, we're very, very uh, ignorant, very, very blind. It's very, very hard for us to see our own problems. Whenever I learn something, even if it is insignificant, thoughts related to it keep repeating inside my mind, especially when I'm asleep. How should I go about these repetitive thoughts? 
There's nothing special about them. There's no... Um, there's no problem that, that they're there. That this isn't a problem that you're having these repetitive thoughts. They're not an exceptional experience. They're just an experience. There's not a problem with them. So try and just note for yourself thinking, thinking. If you're thinking a lot, say distracted, distracted. We tend to place this value judgment that this is insignificant, this is significant. For the meditation practice, that's not important. There's nothing significant about anything. So if, if let's contrast that with the idea that you might learn something that was significant and you think, oh, it's good that this keeps coming back to my mind because this is something that was significant and the fact that I keep thinking about it is a good thing. From a mindfulness perspective, it's not uh, any better or worse. There is no better or worse. There's only experiences. And so it doesn't matter what you think. You know, that's just a thought and you would say thinking, thinking. If you like it or dislike it, you would note that. When you're asleep, again, it's not really much you can or should do about that. Just try and focus when you're awake and you'll find that it helps you sleep better as well. My mind would remember a lover during my meditation. Even though I am continuously noting, thinking, thinking, for months, I still miss her deeply. Should I change the noting? Yeah, thinking doesn't really encompass it because... Okay, it might, and there certainly is a part that is just thinking. But you have to ask yourself whether there's also a craving, a desire for the, for, for the person, desire to see the person, to touch them, a re remembrance, a liking of them liking of the thoughts about them and so on I still miss her deeply is the point so when you miss someone that's not thinking, that's craving that's a potentially sadness disliking of the fact that you're they, that you're not in contact with them so you're not noting the whole picture when you just say thinking, thinking so absolutely, you should be clearly aware of what is there, what's most prominent, and it's not the thinking, it's the missing. You could just say missing, missing, but more more clearly it's disliking, sadness, whatever. While sati is remembrance, and we say the word after it happened, I notice while meditating, I am noting before I do, as an intention guiding the action, how to reconcile noting before. If you're noting before, you're noting the intention, which has also just happened. When you intend to do something, and then you say intending. So if you if you if you're going to move the foot, and you say, you realize that you're going to move the foot, then you would say intending to move. So it's still right after. You can't note something before it happened. You're not actually noting that thing. You're not actually. Reminding yourself about that thing. I mean, it's not necessarily wrong if you do it before, right? Because it does r remind you of what you're about to do, but it's not really, it's not really deeply helpful because it's not real to you. 
there is no there is nothing to remind yourself of except for the imagination you have of what you're going to do the mental picture of what you're going to do which is more like an intention or an anticipation so if you're noting moving before you move then you're not really reminding yourself about the movement the point about using the the, the definition uh, defining sati as remembrance is to remind ourselves of the thing that we've just experienced to keep ourselves from reacting if it hasn't happened yet you're not going to react so there's no, nothing to protect yourself from once you move or say or uh, think or feel there, there will be a potential for a reaction and we prevent that by reminding ourselves that's not good, that's not bad, that's just me sorry, that's that's not good, that's not bad, that's not me, that's not mine that's just it that's just what it is. If it's pain, for example, you would say pain, but you couldn't say it before the pain comes. If you're going to move the hand, then you're not going to remind yourself. Reminding yourself is not about what's going to happen, it's about what you intend to do. If you say it before, there's no benefit. The benefit is not to keep yourself from reacting. It won't have that benefit if you suppose before you move the foot you say moving and then you move you haven't prevented the reaction to the moving you haven't prevented any kind of identification of me mine you haven't prevented any liking or disliking you can only do that after it's already happened because that's when that would occur Can we balance bodhicitta or compassion for others and a practice for self-awareness? I tend to incline more towards the practice of self-awareness and the idea is that compassion comes as a result of that. The more self-aware, the more clear in mind you are, the more potential you have for compassion. But that's also because compassion isn't our goal. If your goal is to help all beings, then you're following a different path, which is not a bad path, it's just one that takes precedence over one's own enlightenment. It leads to future rebirth. It's a long, long path. If you're going to take that path, then the practice of mindfulness is not really your main focus. Can you balance the two? I, I think that's the point, is you can't. You pick one or the other. It's not that, um, and, and again, it's not that being mindful helps. Being mindful doesn't help. It does help. Being mindful helps you become more compassionate, just not on the level of becoming a Buddha. And it doesn't guarantee compassion. A person who is very mindful might not have any opportunity for compassion because they're not going out there out of their way to change the world. They're not trying to become a Buddha to help all beings, for example.
again, uh, only questions, please. The chat is not a place for chatting. It's not a place for discussing. It's not a place for answering people's questions. At this point, everyone should be focused inwardly. If you're not asking a question, close your eyes. Let's take up the practice of mindfulness. Even once you are, if you are asking a question, once you've asked it, forget about it. Don't wait for an answer with your eyes open. Try and focus inwardly. The reason I've turned off my camera is to discourage distraction. To focus everyone inward on, on yourself. If this isn't about me or about questions, it's about you and your practice. Is it helpful to interrupt one's meditation to investigate questions that arise about oneself slash one's habits during meditation, or is it better to note thinking distracted? Yeah, investigating questions isn't really all that helpful. Really, there are two things that happen in meditation. One, you, you discuss guard a lot of questions and two, you answer the rest so questions should either fall into one of these two categories and either you'll discard it as not being an important question or you'll get a very quick and a very immediate answer if there's not an immediate answer to your question it's either not a question worth answering or your mind isn't clear enough to see the answer so as far as investigating questions, it can be useful in the beginning in terms of discovering a proper meditation practice, especially if you don't have a teacher. You sometimes have to ask yourself what to do, try and figure out what to do, and that can be a very practical, mundane sort of thing. But in the long term, that's not a practice that you should encourage. Ultimately, you want to have a mind that's free from questions, a mind that only sees things as they are. There's no question about reality. It's very simple. It's about getting your mind to the point where it can ha have a simple reaction to things. It is what it is. Is it helpful to note a lack of a certain emotion when I'm meditating? For example, I note peaceful, calm. At the same time, I have a sense of no anger, no jealousy. Is this helpful for one's practice? Mm, I don't think so, no. If you, but Okay, so here's the point, is if you have a sense of something, then it's not the no anger or no jealousy, it's the sense. Which is kind of, we often use the word knowing. And knowing is a bit misleading, but it's a, it's a kind of, knowing is a kind of, um, it's an acknowledgement of an awareness when you're aware of something. If you're aware that you have no anger, you would say something like knowing, knowing. It's a bit clumsy, but there's it's it's one it's it works. You could also say aware, which might be a little more accurate. Aware, aware. It's just that knowing is sort of a simpler word, more more um, familiar word, and so we just say knowing, knowing.
can you do walking meditation with your eyes closed? The danger of doing that is that you might fall or become disoriented and that can distract you. It's not just about falling over and hurting yourself. It's about being distracted as you worry about hitting something, worry about falling over. So no, we recommend to do walking meditation with your eyes open. I live with housemates who can sometimes be very loud and messy. This can sometimes be a distraction for me. Can you give any advice to block out this distraction to me? Blocking out speech is difficult. So if so if you're talking about speech, that's something that really it's very hard to um, to to block out well and not block out but to be mindful of because it's very hard not to get caught up in what other people are saying still it's possible but if it's just loud noise or me messiness i mean what is messiness it's still just seeing and uh, experiencing the state of messiness could be smelling or so on but those are just experiences they're they're just senses when you see something when you hear something when you smell when you taste feel and when you think, even just thinking about the messiness is still just thinking. And all of that, it's not a distraction, it's an object of meditation. All of them are, can be taken as objects of meditation. So we're not trying to block anything out. The point of mindfulness is that everything can be an object. All of those senses can be uh, completely are completely valid objects of meditation. And apart from that, any reaction you might have, you get upset about it, if you dislike it, if you're frustrated or angry, or if you crave for a state of quiet or cleanliness or so on, all of those things are also objects of meditation. So it shouldn't be discouraging even when they come up. You should just be mindful and note them. Try and be as patient and objective as you can be. Saying to yourself, disliking, frustrated, angry, wanting, wanting to be calm or peaceful. We're not trying to block things out. We're trying to see them clearly. How does one properly move between walking meditation and sitting meditation? Are there key movements to note? That's actually a good question. No, it's one thing I don't talk about probably enough, just just because I'm trying to stick to the very, very essentials. And if I get into the details, often it's easy to lose people and they, they lose interest. So I often gloss over this part. But it's it's considered to be important that when you're doing meditation, you do walking and sitting together. And when you move from walking to sitting, you should do it mindfully. And this maintains a sense of continuity. So it's important. So when you're done walking, don't just run back to your sitting mat. Try and move mindfully. It can be a combination of actual formal practice, like stepping right, stepping left, turning, and so on. When you reach the mat, you can say intending to sit or wanting to sit. And then just note every movement, bending, lowering, touching, Pushing, pulling, whatever the movements are. There are no key movements in that. I mean, 
to be simplistic, you can just say sitting, sitting as you're as you're lowering your body, sitting, sitting as you're sitting down. But it's more refined and, and I would say more advanced to try and note every little movement. Once you get more proficient, you can move on to saying bending and so on. What is the difference between emotion and feeling? Is it beneficial to differentiate emotions from feeling when being mindful? Well, they're spelled differently. And I say that as a joke, but it's they're just words. The challenge of this question is that we use that same we use both those words for the same to describe the same thing sometimes. So they are just words. I can't give an answer to that question. What I can say is that there are certain things that we would categorize as feelings but not as emotions, and there are certain things that we would categorize as emotions but not feelings. And so there are two categories of things. And if we're going to label one as feeling and the other as emotion, then so be it. We're going to run into the problem where there's a mistaking. It, it, it's not clear which one we're talking about sometimes just because of the meaning of those words in English. But we have something that we call feelings, and for lack of a better word, we call them feelings. And those are simple experiences that have nothing to do with the reaction, not, not directly. They're a part of each experience. They're pleasure, pain, and neutral. These are the three types of feelings. You can feel pain, you can feel pleasure, and you can feel calm or neutral. And that's a part of every experience. And then there's another type of thing that we often call emotion, and that's a reaction to something. It comes as a result of something else. When you're when you like, you like something. When you're dislike, you dislike something. When you're worried, when you're afraid, you're afraid of something, so it's a reaction. At any rate, there are two different categories. More importantly, in meditation practice, it's not important to differentiate between them. So, I, so finding the difference isn't important. It's important to be specific as to what you're experiencing and to, to know clearly which it is you're experiencing. For example, if you're sad, to know that that's sad and not happy or not um, liking and so on. When you're afraid, well, that's not worry, that's fear. To be able to tell the difference in that sense between each experience is important because that's what allows you to create the clarity and to, f to focus and to be present with the experience. That quality of mindfulness, that quality of remembrance, of recognition, of knowing something for what it is, is what allows you to be objective. It's what allows you to cultivate this state of objective clarity that doesn't react, that doesn't cling, that doesn't proliferate. Can mindfulness become like second nature and be there 24-7 apart from when we sleep? 
Or will we always have to remind ourselves to be mindful and to meditate? So when you're enlightened, you won't have to remind yourself to be mindful and meditate. When you become an arahant. So, so yeah, there, it can become second nature. First nature, in fact. Once you've gotten rid of all the delusion, all the ignorance... How do we know if you have had a good meditation? What are we trying to achieve? Control of the thoughts or the stillness of the mind? I wouldn't put it that way in terms of trying to determine whether you've had a good meditation because a good meditation refers to something that is only a concept. You didn't have a meditation at all. You had moments of experience. And so a, a good meditation technically is a good moment, a single good moment. Every single good moment of experience where you're... So we can talk about that. What does that mean? But every time you have one of those, that's a good meditation. To say you sat for an hour, walked for an hour, sat for an hour, and that was a good meditation is really just a... A, a glossing over, a creating of a concept because that thing that you're referring to didn't actually exist all that existed were the moments and some of them were good, maybe some of them were bad and so it's more accurate to refer to the moments what do we call a good moment? a good moment is when you're clearly aware of experience or reality as it is where you're not reacting, where you're not ignorant or deluded where you're not confused, where you don't misunderstand what it is that you're experiencing. So when you feel pain and you're aware of it as pain, when you hear sound and you're aware of it as hearing, when you hear the sound of my voice and you're aware of it as just hearing, when you say to yourself, hearing, and then there's the awareness of this is hearing. That's a good meditation. We are not trying to achieve control of the thoughts. We're trying to achieve objectivity about the thoughts. We're not trying to achieve stillness of the mind, though in the long term that's one of the things that comes from practice. Trying to achieve it is not going to help you achieve it. You should try and focus on whether your mind is still or not. If, you focus, if your mind is, is distracted, is whatever the opposite of still is, is uh, excited or agitated, you should note that, try and see that clearly, rather than trying to achieve some kind of stillness. Because the more you try to achieve it, the more stress you're going to have, the more control, and control is relating to related to self, so trying to control things increases your sense of self, the ego, the attachment, the investment, which leads to disappointment when things go otherwise because, of course, they are not self. They are not ours. They are not under our control. During the rising, falling, sitting, touching meditation, I feel that after some time I note the sitting, my bottom starts to tense. Should I switch postures after some time? 
you can, but you, but really that sounds like there's no reason to. Instead, you should note the tension. Remember, everything that comes is an object of meditation. The the object, the exercise that we give you is only the default when there's nothing else. When something else comes, note that, say, tense, 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 until it goes away. If after a long time it doesn't go away, go back to the default. Then if you notice it again, note it again, you'll find that that works a lot better than trying to avoid it or trying to fix it by moving. The more that I meditate, the more I seem to be in solitude. I am aware of this, but it seems to disturb my family members. How do I explain to them that nothing is wrong? Really, I mean, it's a very common question, but the only way you could explain to them is if they could understand that nothing is wrong. But the only way they can understand that nothing is wrong is to understand that nothing is wrong, to, to gain the understanding that you've gained. Their, your state disturbs them because they don't understand your state. If they understood your state, it wouldn't disturb them, right? So really the only way is for them to actually meditate as well, which simply means that it's an inevitable consequence of change that it leads to stress and suffering for people who are unwilling or incapable of accommodating or, or adapting to the change. So you really can't help these help them. You're just going to have to live with the stress that they're, that or I mean, they're going to have to live with it but you're going to have to live with the fact that they're stressed because that's the nature of of clinging the nature of the inability to deal with change and the preference the bias for for certain states we're biased in favor of community, engagement. We want to see our family members get involved. We want to have some contact and some involvement, some engagement with our family members. It's unpleasant for people when they don't get what they want. And if they want to engage with you, that's unpleasant. People, There's also often just a desire, um, a attachment or an inclination, a habit of reactivity. So it's like people like to get upset almost, which is kind of sad, but we are inclined to get upset. We have this idea that getting upset is somehow useful, right? So the, the most glaring problem here is that, that these people should think that getting upset is going to make things better. If I get upset, that will improve the situation. Right? We have this idea, if we get upset, then people will change and then everything will be good. But all that happens when you get upset is it gives you the habit, encourages your habit of getting upset. It increases your uh, aversion, your reactivity. It strengthens the trigger so that next time you get even more upset and you can build yourself into a great fury as a result of cultivating this reactivity.
We like to get upset. We think it's going to help us. That's the saddest part. So the best thing you can do for them is help them to meditate. I mean, helping them realize these sorts of things can be useful on a practical level, but talk is cheap. Eventually it's up to them if they're going to actually help themselves the way you've helped yourself. What we do goes very much against the way of the world. The way of the world is one of entanglement, getting entangled, manipulating each other, clinging to each other, reacting to each other. When you stop all that, it can be very disconcerting to people who believe those sorts of things are useful, good, helpful, beneficial, conducive of hap conducive of happiness satisfying people who believe that the entanglement is, is of benefit is it more beneficial to meditate indoors or outdoors I would say being indoors or outdoors has no impact on your meditation beyond a, a sort of conventional level. It can be that if you practice outdoors, you have more energy. Uh, it can also be that if you practice outdoors, you're more distracted. But that's all just very mundane. Ultimately, you're practicing always inside your own body. You don't practice indoors or outdoors, you practice in the body. Buddha said, the beginning of the world, the end of the world is found in this six-foot frame. Within this six-foot frame. How to motivate yourself to meditate every day. The mind always finds excuses. Meditate on those excuses. Meditate on the distractions, the, the aversions and so on. Training, practice, association with people who also meditate. We have an online meditation group. You're welcome to spend some time there. Maybe that will help you stay focused it's up to you nobody else is going to do it for you when I meditate I use headphones so that external sounds cannot distract me is this okay to practice in this way? distract you from what? They're part of your meditation. If you're trying to focus only on certain states, you're going to cultivate a sort of partiality. So unless the, the sounds are of people talking, which, as I said, can be a special problem, and I would say, I don't know, I'm almost inclined to say people could use headphones if they were having to meditate surrounded by people chatting. Um, but apart from that, I wouldn't recommend it. Even in that case, I'm not convinced that it's useful advice. Ultimately, they become those things become objects of meditation. Try and be mindful of them.
So distract you from what? From reality? They are real. They are reality. When those sounds are there, you would note hearing, hearing. And it's it's very beneficial for you to for you to do that because clearly they're the kinds of things that create reactions in you. So clearly they're the sorts of things that you have to learn about. You have to gain a better relationship towards. You have to come to terms with. Not something that is easy to deal with. If there's, if it were all about avoiding those things that cause problems, you would never learn anything. Because we're trying to learn how to deal with our problems, how to solve our problems. You have to focus on those things that you find problematic. Face them. Sometimes the breath has a rhythm and the mind has another one. How should we find a rhythm? Should it change according to something like the breath rhythm, slowing or going faster? Rhythm implies past and future. Consider carefully. Try and get understand what I'm saying here. Rhythm is not a present moment experience. Rhythm is a concept that relates to past and future. You only have rhythm when you are you only have rhythm in reference to what has already passed and what has not yet come. And so it is not an important part of the practice. Breath doesn't have a rhythm. Rhythm is an idea you get. It's a it's a function of the mind to create the idea of a rhythm. But breath is just a moment and we don't focus exactly on the breath, we focus on the body. When there's a movement in the body, we focus on that movement. So when the stomach rises, we focus on that. There's no rhythm in that. It it arises and ceases. And during that time, the only thing that we are, have reference towards is that experience, not the thing that already happened or the thing that's going to happen next. So rising, falling is not a rhythm. Each rising is its own experience. Each falling is its own experience. And that one experience, one at a time, should be our only focus. Does wishing have a power? Is it a useful tool? When we wish someone well, like saying, may you be good, may you succeed, is this a useless delusion, or at that moment something is actually happening? Well, I mean, I don't know. There, there, there are ideas that somehow that sort of thing does have some power, certainly not godlike power, but it's not really relevant, and so I'm going to stick to what's relevant here in the context of meditation practice. Is that what is useful about that sort of thing? When it, you know, wishing in general, I'm not interested in, so we're not going to talk about that. Maybe I can't explain why, but first of all, let's focus on wishing someone well. The particular example of wishing someone well, how is that beneficial? It's beneficial in two ways. It creates friendliness towards the other person, so it creates harmony and peace, of course. But also it creates a sense of peace in your mind. Just being that sort of person who is thoughtful and compassionate and caring frees you up from all sorts of jealousy and envy, you know, resentment, anger and hatred and cruelty and so on. But... As far as the power of wishing, regardless of whether it does or doesn't have any power, 
It's not the direction which we're trying to go. We're trying to cultivate um, non-judgmental awareness where we're not trying to accomplish anything, where we're not wishing for anything to occur, where we're seeing things that do happen and our focus is on what is happening, not on what we want to happen or what we wish to happen. So regardless of whether there is a power to it, it's not the power we're seeking. Because whatever you get, the cultivation of the desire of some, for something to happen is habit-forming. And it leads you to incline in that direction, to incline towards wanting things to happen. And all it's going to do is in the future make you more inclined to want things to happen. This doesn't actually satisfy. There's no solution. There's no conclusion. There's no resolution. It's just more and more and more wishing. Wishing leads to more wishing. I work in a chaotic environment, i.e. an emergency room. How do I incorporate mindfulness in this highly distractible environment? Is it better to let go of this goal and focus on my practice at home? No, I don't think so. You just have to sort of, let's say, categorize and prioritize. Triage, <laughs> to use an emergency room terminology. Don't try and catch every little thing. It's not going. You're not going to benefit from that. Let some of it slip by. The best focus for, for non-formal meditation is the four postures. Walking, standing, sitting, lying. From time to time, come back to those four postures. Whenever you think of it, whenever you're in need of some kind of mindfulness, focus firstly on those four postures. Whatever one you're in, if you're walking, when you're walking down the street or down the hall or running, you know, you can say running, running. If you're walking, say walking, walking. When you're standing, when you're sitting, note that. The other thing, of course, would be the, the emotions. If you're stressed or tired, angry, frustrated, all of those things are very dangerous, right? They can lead us to uh, collapse. They can lead us to burnout. And so focus on those. Try and take them as an object as well. You can note the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. You don't have to catch everything. But there's so many things you can be mindful of. And whenever you think of it, use it, take it. Don't be discouraged by what you weren't being mindful of. Try and find something to be mindful of as a means of centering yourself. You'll find it's invaluable. It's priceless. In inestimable. Inestimable, inestim, very valuable. Inner labels, too slow to note everything in experience, switching between sensations and imagining the abdomen so fast, it almost seems like they are simultaneous. I can't mentally say labels so fast. There's no benefit in trying to note everything. Again, just... As I was just saying, try and note something. So even in formal meditation, we don't try to note everything. We try to note something that is present. You can take as a sort of a guide one note per second, but it's not a hard and fast rule. If you note rising, focus on the rising. If something distracts you, note it. 
but try and stay with one thing until it goes away. Once it's gone, just go back to the rising and falling. Don't try and note everything. There's no benefit there. I see goodness brings just some refined pleasure and a lot of suffering. How to give up attaching to be a, a good person. True goodness doesn't bring any suffering. So you might have a sort of superficial idea of what goodness is, like giving gifts, for example, or being kind to others. Suffering comes from reacting to things, and reacting to things is not goodness. This is why meditation or mindfulness is considered to be the greatest good, because it's what ultimately leads to peace, happiness, freedom from suffering. So you should give up attachment to external forms of goodness and try and focus inwardly on true goodness, which is purity of mind, purity of intention. If your intentions and inclinations and your state of mind is pure, you can't suffer. All right, it's four o'clock, so we're going to end it there. So now you can say what you want The ban on non-question posts is lifted Say what you want, post what you like We didn't answer everyone's questions um, I see someone complained about asking their same question three times Was it a good question, Chris? I don't know whether to judge it was good or bad but it wasn't specifically about the practice Bhante hmm. they're talking about having sensations from fast experiences that haunt them I get all sweaty and fear for my life this person I would recommend they read the booklet on how to meditate it might help if you haven't read the booklet then I recommend you do so because it has, I mean, it's not a perfect guide, but it has some exercises that you can put into practice. Really, it's a direct answer to your question from our perspective. If you practice according to the booklet, you'll find that it helps you deal with attachment, it helps you deal with fear, it helps you deal with things like PTSD and feelings and so on. Right, that's all. Thank you all for coming. I wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering.